Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you ought to think theologically. I am one of your hosts, Jack Dodge, and joined by our theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how you doing? Well, uh, not too bad. Now that we're up here in Oklahoma, we're through all the the ice and tree damage and all of that fun stuff. Yeah, my my dad's got five acres and three of it's like creek, uh, just full of trees everywhere. And he said, sounded like a war zone in his backyard for a few days. And then they lost power. You know how it goes. Yeah, about at my house, I've got several big trees. I've about with about every five minutes, uh, something would break and hit the ground for like three days straight. Um, so I've got a lot of cleaning up to do. Yeah, I went over to help and we're building a huge burn pile. I'm going to have a massive, uh, massive bonfire and uh, then probably do it two or three more times because there's just so many trees. Uh, but we're, we're done with the ice. The ice is gone. Now we just deal with the consequences of the ice. Um, and here pretty soon, we're going to be done with the election as we're recording. Well, I hope. Uh, as we're recording this, who knows? Uh, we who knows? are. Uh, it's Wednesday, November fourth. So, didn't find out last night. Still finding out right now. Who knows how long it'll take? How it'll all shake out in the end, and and all of that. But uh, yeah, and it looks like we're gonna at least get one, if not more, recounts and potentially some lawsuits and stuff like that. So it this could end up dragging on for a while before Ex- we exciting times know anything so <laughs> oh it, just, it, it fits perfectly with 2020 i mean i, I wouldn't expect anything less i mean it, from this year it's got to end so, before christmas at, right i mean come at on least it, let us have christmas <laughs> come on it I, i'm i'm really hoping it it does but the, the problem is at, at least this is what i heard when it comes to now, maybe I'm wrong on this, but when it comes to some of the, like, recounting stuff, you have to wait for things to be official. And yeah. then some of those states, I don't think that's till, like, December 1st when everything becomes official official. So, I mean, we could be still doing this come Christmas. So, who knows? Well, I guess the good news is then uh, we'll be talking about politics a little bit perhaps uh perhaps this two-part episode will become a uh a three-part episode who knows (laughs) if it drags on that long we may have to uh go back into the well and spend a little more time on it Uh, but today we're starting in at least a two-part series at least And, and it's it's could be the opposite of that one episode we kept pushing off and eventually finally got we to. We just never stopped. could work the opposite, and this <laughs> yeah. one just kind of keeps going, and we never get away from it. I mean, if, if the culture is going to write the material for us, then we'll go ahead and talk about what the culture is talking about. But today, we're going to talk about Christian and politics, uh, and just lay the, we're going to lay the groundwork today uh, with some preliminary thoughts 
Uh, next episode, we're planning to apply the information that we're talking about today. And so it'd be good for uh, you to stay in touch with both parts of these. Make sure you listen to both parts of these episodes uh, uh, wherever you get your podcasts or uh, strongchurch.org where there's a bunch of other material as well. I've written a few things about politics uh, over the years and they're, they're sitting on there as well. Uh, some of them I'm sure that will cause people to be upset because they did a few years ago and, you know, why not now? Let's revisit all of that. You can also send us information uh, on your thoughts, stuff that you want us to talk about, uh, maybe questions you've had from listening to us at uh, strongchurchministries at gmail.com. Send us your thoughts, your questions, or uh, topics for other episodes, especially if this does start being the never-ending series. <laughs> Uh, it'd be nice to have something to go, okay, these people really want us to get out of here and talk about this instead. So, but for today, we're all about the politics. And I want to mention as we get started, you know, our our ultimate goal is really, you know, the name of the podcast is Thinking Theologically to create a theology of politics. But as we, especially when we were defining theology early on, it's rooted in biblical text. It's rooted in the Bible. Yeah. And so that's why we kind of want to begin in this first one by just looking at that biblical evidence. What does the Bible say about the topic? So then we can kind of next week in what will be a little bit more of a application, um, we can kind of pull all that together and create a, a cohesive theology of the relationship between the Christian, the church, and politics, and the the government, uh, but we've got to start in the the biblical text, and so uh, we obviously won't be able to hit everything that the Bible says about the topic because we'd be here for ever, yep. probably. Uh, we just got to hit some of the the highlights, some of what we think are the important texts. But I, I do want to mention if we leave something out that you think is significant or we're, think we need to make a part of the theology that we're creating or whatever, feel free to, to send that to, and we can talk about that text or make sure to include it or uh, something like that, because this is definitely not going to be all-inclusive and very well could have left out something important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, all that being said, I hope you have your Bible on you, because we're going to look at a number of verses today uh, and just look at as far as government and interacting with the government and politics and all those things, what do we see in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, and what what does it say about all of that? We're going to start with uh, the political language of Jesus. We're going to go right to Jesus himself uh, and his words on uh, politics or his language about politics. Uh, Spencer, where do we where do we begin with Jesus's language on politics? Yeah, so I, I think it's important to begin with Jesus because we've we've talked about before how the the gospel has to be the center of our theology, and at the center of the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of, of Jesus. We've talked about how Jesus reveals most fully God to us, who God is. And so I think it just kind of makes sense with starting with, with him. And Jesus had a lot, used a lot of political language. The gospel, Jesus' life is political. And I think that's important for us to realize because 
I, I've heard a lot of people claim that the the gospel that the the church is in no way political, and I just disagree with that. I, I think the the gospel is very much uh, political. I think the life of Jesus is very much political because the life of Jesus challenges ultimate power, allegiance, and prosperity, and we see that in the teachings of Jesus which culminate in his crucifixion. We have to understand that Jesus' crucifixion was a political act. Rome mm. didn't uh, crucify everyone that they, they killed. That was Crucifixion was reserved for those who went against the empire. It was, to use kind of the language we would use today, it was for those who committed treason in some way, and that— mm is how Rome viewed Jesus. That's why, you know, Pilate puts that sign above Jesus, King of the Jews, which to Rome is a challenge against the King of Rome, the emperor of Rome, for Jesus to claim to be king, which he did. Um, Jesus claimed to be ultimate king, uh, to be the ultimate Lord uh, of the world at in claiming to be God. And so that was an attack on Rome. And that's why he was killed in the manner that he was. And so in by Jesus claiming to be Lord, claiming to be king, uh, Jesus challenged who is ultimately in control, who has the power. Because politically, Rome claimed to be in control, right? The Roman emperor, I am ultimate king. I am in control. I have the power. And by Jesus claiming to be king, he was in essence saying, no, you don't. I, God, has ultimate power. He's the one that's ultimate in, ultimately in control. He's the one where your ultimate allegiance should be given, not to the Roman Empire. And so Jesus' life was an attack on the political system of his time in claiming that there is a new and greater Lord, someone who's in control. And in doing that, Jesus also redefined what it means to lead, what it means to have power, what it means to be in control. Uh, Jesus says this in Mark 10, 42 through 45, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus attacked Gentile leaders. Those are Roman leaders. And said that they lead in this way. They lord their power over you. But he said, that's not the way it's to be above my followers, but the greatest among you will be the least. And Jesus modeled that. He modeled a new way to lead, which was an attack on the political leaders of his day and says, you need to lead in another way. You lead by serving. Jesus modeled that servant leadership. That's what he desires for his people. That's what he desires for his church here. What's interesting is in scripture, the most profound use of power was when Jesus died to the earthly powers. By dying on the cross and giving up his life was God's display of ultimate power.
which is the complete opposite of the way worldly leaders, even up to today, typically utilize their power. It's not in that way. But Jesus also, we see throughout his ministry, claimed to bring uh, peace. was one of the things that comes up over and over again. And what's interesting is that the Roman Empire also claimed to bring peace and prosperity. They claim that they're the ones who bring ultimate peace. And again, by Jesus claiming to be, bring peace, what he's saying is no ultimate peace, ultimate prosperity, True life and satisfaction is not found by giving your allegiance to the Roman Empire, but it's found in giving your allegiance to me, giving your allegiance to God, which, again, was an attack on the claims of Rome. And so Jesus' life, his language, particularly the way he identified himself and his ministry as king, as Lord, who has come to bring peace and life on earth, was a direct attack against the political systems of his day. Hmm. Yeah, very yeah. Uh, very much so. And uh while you were talking about the Roman Empire, uh I was thinking about uh Jesus not just challenging the the Roman government with his words, but also whatever government the Jews were allowed to have underneath the Roman government. There's just there's challenges to power in every aspect of what Jesus is doing. You know, the Jews hand him over to the Romans because the Jews are upset about what he's doing uh, to their their government, right. their form. And you even have Herod at the beginning, right? Uh, there's going to be a challenge to my yeah. power. <laughs> we need to deal with this. Every time that Jesus interacts with the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees in the temple— He's in essence attacking the power structures of mm-hmm. their day. And and what's very interesting, particularly with the—I'm I'm glad you brought that up because it reminds me particularly with his interaction with the Pharisees. You know, the, the Pharisees actually didn't have any power in the Jewish hierarchy. It was the, the Sadducees that controlled the temple uh, that— that really had the the power. What Pharisees were were just more of people who had power through teaching. It was more of an influential type thing. But either way that you look at it, but particularly for the Pharisees, did they want to be under control of Rome or did they want to be their own people? Well, of course they wanted to be their own people, but it, it wasn't that bad for them to be under Rome because Rome kind of allowed them to do their own thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, you you see that, and so for Jesus to attack not only the Jewish hierarchy, but particularly even for Jews, for Jesus to attack Rome would mean, oh no, Jesus is stirring up all of this with Rome, which is going to mess up our Jewish comfort in being able to do and to worship like we want to by Jesus claiming all of these things, and so even Jesus' attack on Rome stirred things up within the Jewish hierarchy because it meant, oh no, we may not be able to do what we want, even though it's not optimal. They had kind of, Jews had kind of gotten comfortable. And I think you see some of that in Jesus' interactions as well of, you know, what's going to happen if Rome flips on us as well as Jesus saying, even within yourselves, you're not doing things right. 
So those uh, that's that's Christ's language uh, about government, his interaction with government, uh, and ultimately this bringing, uh, redefining what leadership is, bringing true peace to everyone. Uh, but as we see, his his presentation, his gospel uh, of peace, was ultimately a challenge of power uh, to those in charge in the government. That's what brings about his his crucifixion. Uh, but that's Christ's language on politics. How do Christ followers, uh, what, what's their relationship to the government then, uh, uh, now? What, what, what is our relationship, uh, if not now, what was it then uh, after Christ's crucifixion? Yeah, so when, when we think about the Christian's relationship to government, regardless of what time period you're talking about, I think for most of us, probably the first place that we would go to answer such a question would be to Romans 13, where Paul writes, let everyone, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes." For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all who is owed to them. Pay all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now there's a lot in that passage. A couple things I just want to bring to mind is, you know, Paul says that government is instituted by God, that in essence, nobody gains power, nobody gains control without them allowing, without God allowing them to, right? God is sovereign. This is his world, and he's involved in it. So anything that happens, if God didn't cause it, God is allowing it to, to happen, at least. And so Paul points out that, that governments are instituted by God first because nobody rises to power without God allowing them to. But God also has a role for government. And in essence, what Paul says here is the, the role of government is to be God's servant in bringing about God's wrath. In other words, in celebrating good and punishing evil. And so I think we also have to understand that in that line, government and those who work in government, I think, are going to ultimately be held accountable for their role as God's servants, just as all of us are. Right, God has expectations for us, and God's going to hold us accountable. And I think we can say that true about uh, human governments, that God has a role for them. And so in some way, they're going to be held accountable for that. And that role is to punish evil, like I said, to celebrate good, which is very interesting that Paul uses the word wrath because that connects us back to Chapter 1 and verse 18, where Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness 
and ungodliness uh, that men do that suppress the truth, that suppress God. And then, you know, Paul goes on to show how both Jews and Gentiles are under the power of sin. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's interesting that in essence, what Paul is saying is one way that God brings about his wrath against evil is through human government. Now, that's obviously not the only way, and that's not the ultimate way. We think of the ultimate judgment, but one way that God does go about in dealing with evil is using human government. And, you know, we, we see that demonstrated in the Old Testament, right? In God punishing the people of Israel through other governments, through other nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, we see God holding other nations accountable for what they do. It, it's even interesting when Israel is taken into Babylon, right? It's for punishment. But ultimately, why? what's one of the reasons that Babylon is overthrown? Well, it, it's because they were even too harsh on Israel, right? God held them accountable for the way that they carried out what God wanted them to carry out, in essence. And so we kind of see that principle, I think, throughout Scripture of the servant role that God intends for governments to hold, but that they don't always. And so there's some kind of accountability there. Uh, because just like all of us human beings, everything and everyone falls short of the glory of God, as Paul says uh, earlier in, in Romans as well. Um, but I also want to to bring to light the role that Paul says Christians here are to have towards government. He says to be subject to them, uh, to obey the government. Now, that doesn't mean to obey the government if they tell you to do something that's contrary to the faith, right? The gospel is still at the center of everything that we do. But as long as it's not contrary, Paul says, be subject to them. He says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. He says it twice, be in subjection to the government, Uh, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And so I think that's important. Not only be subject, as in, I think that's the idea of, you know, being obedient to them as long as it's not contrary to your faith. Honor what they tell you to do. Uh, pay taxes, if that's one of the things that they ask. You know, we Jesus in Mark 12, 17 says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Uh, that's talking about pay taxes. You know, pay your, your taxes, give this earthly money to the government, if they ask, be subject, be obedient to them, and give to God the things that are God's, right? But Paul also says to show respect and honor to whom it's it's due. And so it's more than just being obedient, but it's being respectful, being showing honor to them, which is more because you can be obedient and disrespectful, right? You can be hmm. obedient and not honorable. So Paul doesn't just say, be obedient, and but do it in any way that you want or say whatever you want. Um, but be respectful. Be honorable to those who are in these positions of authority and power because God's allowed them to be for one reason or another, and we could debate why or why not God allows certain things to, to happen. But I think the honor and respect is important. And I think that goes along with what we see Paul saying in places such as 1 Timothy 2, where he says to pray for leaders, mm-hmm. um, pray for their welfare, pray for 
their leadership, the way that they utilize their power. Because as Christians, we, we want the good of, for, of everyone, right? We want the good of the world, not just for us, but the good of everyone. And so those who are in power and are making decisions that impact a lot of people, we need to be praying for them, praying that they make the right decisions, pray that they do the right things, things like that, because of the way it impacts everyone else, because we're not just a closed off group all for ourselves, but ultimately the church is for the world, right? We want to see the world blessed. We want to see the world prosper. We want to see the world come to God and come to faith. And so, you know, Paul says, pray for those who are in leadership, who are making decisions, who are doing things like that. And he says that in more places than just um, First Timothy. Uh, and so I think that goes along with the fact that our ultimate concern in everything that we do, including politics, must be the good of other people and not for ourselves. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he gives the Christ hymn there where he shows how Jesus enacted that kind of humility and not looking out for his own interests, but looking out for the interests of other people. And I think we can summarize the life of the Christian in many ways by simply saying, look out for other people above yourself. Consider other people more significant than yourself. That's also what Paul says there in Philippians 2, because that's what Jesus did. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? As as Paul says, by caring about others more than you care about yourself. And that's not just for the life of the church. That's not just for our everyday life, but that's also for political life. And so when we think about our relationship to politics, I think it's important to remember our call to consider others more significant than ourselves, uh, to care more about others than we care for ourselves in everything that we do. Another passage that's interesting there in Philippians is in Philippians 1.27. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the, the phrase manner of life is a translation of the Greek word polituomai, which is a derivative of the word polis, which is where we get our word politic, right? It speaks of a community, you know, a way a community governs and organizes itself, the way a community of people interacts with one another. And specifically there in Philippians 1, Paul is concerned with how the politic of the church, that is how the church interacts with one another, how the church governs and organizes itself, being a reflection of the gospel. But what's important is that in the first century, there really wasn't anything you could call private life, at least not how we had it today. What you did as a community, as the church was public, people around you would see that. And so the politic within the church, the way the church interacts with one another, takes place within the bigger politic in Philippians of Philippi, but also within the entire Roman Empire, because the way the church interacts with one another is a witness on the grand scale. And so what Paul is saying is let your manner of life, let the way that you live, let the way that you interact with one another be a reflection and a witness to the world of the gospel. Again, 
Everything that we do has the gospel at the center. What's at the center? Jesus. What did Jesus show? Humility. A new way to lead. A new way to serve. Caring about others more than yourself. Showing honor to whom honor is due. And all those different things that we see uh, said throughout not only the life of Jesus, but also the writings of Paul. Uh, Just one to add to this, and I know that there are plenty of other verses as well, but... uh, First uh, Peter two thirteen through seventeen also has Peter in in his discussion talking about uh, the government uh, being subject to them, um, honoring the emperor as well uh, as well as talking about their punishing of evil and their uh, praising of those that do good. So very similar to the the Romans passage uh, from a from a different author uh, saying very mm-hmm. similar things during a time where. Uh, they are suffering, uh, and he's and he's saying all this. So, uh, if you're listening and taking some notes down, First Peter two thirteen through seventeen is another good one to go uh, look up in regard to uh, the Christian relationship to government, which is uh, ultimately to uh, to do the same thing that Jesus did of carrying the the true peace, uh, this gospel with us, and working in continuing to do good under the government, not doing bad, uh, continuing to pray for the government, uh, and continuing to pray that we can carry the gospel freely as we live throughout this world, uh, very similar to what Jesus did while he was here on earth. Um, giving the gospel and doing good and what happens, happens, uh, and that's that's our relationship uh, as well there. Uh, you have uh, here for us a, an important reminder, I hope if you are turning in your Bibles with us, that you stayed in Philippians, because uh, there's a very important reminder from Paul uh, in dealing with these other thoughts about being like Christ uh, that we need to remember, especially when it comes to government. Uh, what's that reminder for us, Spencer? Right. You know, I... I... It just, I've said this a couple times, but in everything, it comes down to having the gospel, having Jesus at the center of, of everything that we do. And so that's why in this conversation, for me, the most important passage is Philippians three seventeen through 21, where Paul says, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul reminds us that our ultimate citizenship is not in this world. In other words, like Jesus taught, our ultimate allegiance is not to anything in this world, uh, any person, any uh, government, any institution, no matter what it may be. But our ultimate allegiance is to God because that's where our citizenship is found. It's interesting that Paul says that that there are many people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What are they doing? Well, Paul says that their God is their bellies and their minds are set on earthly things. In other words, Paul says that those who walk as enemies of the Christ are more focused about the things of this world than they are about the things of God. And so Paul says our citizenship is not in this world. 
It's not where our ultimate concern is. It's not where our ultimate allegiance lies. It lies in heaven. That's where our citizenship is found. And that has to govern everything that we do. Not always easy. That's why Paul's, you know, reminding the Philippians here. Not always easy to do. It's easy to get caught up in things of the world. But Paul's reminding them that's not ultimately where our citizenship, our priorities, or our allegiance is found. Yeah, not not an easy thing to do, but is very consistently what we see in Scripture done by all those that interact with government. You see Paul, I referenced Peter's words a moment ago. Uh, we looked at Jesus' interaction with government. Uh, but then there are the, those um, in the Old Testament that really have a prominent role within government. There are multiple characters um, and we want, we want to mention three of them now and just uh, kind of a few thoughts about each of them. Uh, but there's, there's very much uh, very heavy involvement in government from God's people uh, pre-Christ as well. Uh, and we still see the same sort of thing being lived out there, where their focus is, what they're doing, and just living that out regardless of who's in power and uh, what challenges they may face. Uh, who's the first we want to talk about here, Spencer? Yeah, so, you know, what, what's interesting in the Old Testament uh, is that, you know, Israel, once the nation comes about, which not all of these characters are, uh, our first one, Joseph, is, uh, you know, pre-establishment of the theocracy right. or a government run by God. But that was God's ultimate plan, uh, is for him to be ultimately in control, but when characters of the Old Testament found themselves in other places, they kind of had to adapt. And so we yeah. see that with, you know, Joseph, who rises to second in command in Egypt. And how is that utilized? Well, it's utilized ultimately for Joseph to save and provide for his family, which is kind of the foundation of the people of Israel, right? You get no people of Israel if Joseph doesn't rise to power and use that to save his family. Yep. Um, we see uh, Daniel right rise to to power, and and even within that, right, he uh, ultimately his allegiance is to God. We see the same thing with uh, Joseph, right? God is Joseph allows God to work through him to save his family. Eventually, becomes the people of Israel. Daniel. I think maybe the first thing that comes to our mind is when Daniel's thrown in the lion's den, right, for praying to to God, right, and uh, not to the not to the king. What's Daniel doing there? Yeah, he he has power, he has influence, but ultimately, still, everything he's doing is first and foremost to serve God. Very similar to you know what Paul says: our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Um, Esther, right, uses her influence on the the king to do pretty much the same thing that Joseph does, to yep. save her people, to save God's people. God uses her in that role, in that way. It's also interesting, I, I want to use Paul as an example as well. Paul rightly says our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, but there were times when Paul utilized the rights of his Roman citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um. But that wasn't ultimately where his identity was found, but that didn't mean he, at times he didn't utilize that. But why did he do it? It was for the sake of the kingdom. It was for the sake of 
God. It was in service of his ultimate citizenship. And I think that's what we see in Joseph with Daniel, with Esther, that they're, they've gained this power, they've gained this influence, but it's all used in the service of God. You know, I, I, I don't think that having power is a bad thing. I, I don't think the, the Bible tells us as Christians that we need to be pursuing after and seeking earthly power for ourselves. But at times we will gain, we will have, we will be given by others power, which is what happens with Joseph, Daniel, and Esther. They were given power. They were given influence. And so the question is, when those things are given to us, how do we use them? Do we use them just to gain more power? Do we use them for ourselves? Uh, Do we use them only to help people that we like or only people that are like us? Or do we use them in service of the kingdom, in service of God, in service of others, again, with the gospel at the the center? How are we using, when we do have power and influence, how are we using it? Yeah, and that that idea of none of these three pursued it, Um, you could throw in Daniel's three friends as well. Uh, they also are heavily involved in the uh, Babylonian government. Um, I don't remember about the Medes-Persian side of things for them, but uh, their fiery furnace encounter uh, has them very much acting as Daniel uh, did as yeah. well in his lion's den encounter. So uh, you have those. Yeah. You you do have some negative if we and and maybe we should pursue some of this in the next episode as well. We we could obviously go to the kings uh, and look at bad interactions and usage of government, uh, but that's an, another thing for another time. Uh, it would be consistent there to say though uh, that in those situations there was pursuit of power and it cost you know, Solomon comes to mind cost Israel big time uh, in pursuit of power and expanding the empire. And that's not what we see with Joseph, Daniel, Esther. We don't see that with Paul. We don't, we don't see that with all these others uh, who have power through faithful living. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I think of uh, uh, the first that comes to my mind is Saul. And the reason is because there's there's actually mixed thoughts in the Old Testament about a king. Uh, Moses talks about it in Deuteronomy, and then you have uh, yeah. first, Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, and kind of what's presented there is on the one hand, yeah, it's bad. A king is bad because Israel in some way is giving up uh, God as their ultimate king, which is normally what we... Uh, talk about, but in Moses' speech in Deuteronomy, a king is not presented as a bad thing. A king is presented as a as a good thing, but that God is still the ultimate king. That yeah, you know, you'll have a king that rules and makes laws and does stuff like that, but it's again ultimately in service of God. And it seems to me that that was the intent. For the kingdom, when Saul takes over, but what does Saul do? Why does Saul get his kingdom taken away from him? Well, it's because he does things to serve himself. Yeah, right? and then we see he him try to cling to that power throughout yes. his narrative. Yeah, and so God takes it. So 
God is no longer their ultimate king, even though they have a, a human king, which was the intention even in those moments when they switched over from the judges to uh, King Saul. It's how, how is that being used? Which is why you get that kind of mixed discussion of a king, because it's like, yeah, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but we as human beings and how we tend to relate to power, yeah, it it is a bad thing. It is a rejection of, of God. The kings aren't going to use it right. Not one of them, you know, was perfect. Right. Right. That, that Saul, David, Solomon, when the kingdom was united, all had their problems. And so you kind of get, that's why I think you kind of get that mixed thing of, well, it's not technically wrong, but look at the way it ended up being used. Um, yeah, it's so. it's very similar to the discussions on money, especially in the New Testament, where it's not wrong to be rich. The pursuit of it, though, or the love of, or the desire to be, you start entering into these problems, and those that are rich may have a tougher time seeing the need for God or you know a number of other things. Just where, where there is opportunity for power to be amassed, there comes a lot of trouble and difficulties. Uh, it keeps it much harder to focus on our citizenship is in heaven, our allegiance is to Christ and his gospel. It becomes a lot harder to stay focused on that when there's power to be gained in the world, mm-hmm. which I think leads into this last part we want to talk about before we uh, close part one here, uh, the cosmic nature of sin uh, and sin's involvement with power, ultimately. Yeah, um, sin is definitely ingrained in power. Uh, what What's the, the saying um, Absolute about... power corrupts absolutely, is that what you're thinking of? Yes, yes. I, I, so you, you you see that in in power, and at some point, I, I actually want to do at least one episode specifically on the cosmic nature of sin, particularly in Romans. But I'll just briefly mention it here. In in Romans, in particular, Paul personifies sin. Sin becomes a character. Uh, maybe we it would be best to think of Paul's use of sin like the way we would talk about the devil. Right, it's it's a character that acts and does things. Particularly in Romans five, sin and death enter into the world, and they set up a kingdom, and they enslave everybody and everything. So, sin is personified as this king that set up a kingdom hmm. in the world. Uh, in other words, sin in the New Testament is not just the times you and I as individuals miss the mark, that most basic definition of sin. It's not just those times that you and I as individuals do something wrong, but sin has a bigger, a more cosmic impact on the world. We see that, for example, in Paul's language in places like Ephesians and Colossians of principalities and powers. Uh, and p- people debate about whether those principalities and powers are spiritual beings or earthly uh, powers. But h- however we want to look at those, in the first century, it was believed that these powers in the world, these principalities and powers, that there are spiritual things that sit behind them, that influence them, evil spiritual uh, principalities and powers. So either way yeah. we want to look at it, it, it comes out— in the powers of the world. Sin ingrains itself into the fabric of society and causes things that happen 
that cannot be traced back to any one individual doing something wrong. An example of this, and, and I'm not being, and I hope I don't come off as being politically biased one way or the, the other, but any economic system you could ever come up with, from the far left to the far right, doesn't matter. Every economic system, someone's going to have an advantage over someone else, right? And that's not the way God wants things to be, but that's the way they are in a broken world, right? And that's an example of the way sin has infiltrated into the very fabric of the world. Because you can't trace that back to, well, who sinned? That It's kind of like when Jesus uh, was asked the question about that blind man, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind, right? Well, not every thing that happens in the world that's not God's intention is just traced back to one person sinning. You know, why are people born with disabilities? Why, uh, like I said, no matter what you can come up with, someone has an advantage and someone doesn't in an economic system. You think of racism. Why does racism still exist? What person sinned, right? You can't trace it back. It's just kind of, you've got a sin that's ingrained into the fabric of our world. And that's been true at all times and in all places, everywhere in the world, uh, there are things that take place, there are evils that take place that can't be traced back to one person. They, they kind of ingrain in the fabrics of the, the world. And so th that's why th you're never going to have a perfect government. Not, not even Israel's theocracy, as we talked about, was perfect because sin is ingrained in the world. But particularly, we see it ingrained in those places of power, in those people, in those systems, in those governments that are in control, sin is still ingrained in them. And it causes things to happen that is not God's intention. And so when we think about the way we relate to government as Christians, or if we're a Christian that works in government, or whatever it may be, we have to keep in mind the way sin ingrains itself in those institutions. And because if we're not aware of that, we can perpetuate those problems, hmm. perpetuate those sins, uh, wh whatever they may be. Um, and I mean, that, that that's true anywhere. I mean, you could even look at the, the church and you could see the way that sin can have a tendency to infiltrate certain aspects of the church, right? Where we lead in ways that we shouldn't. We start doing things that we shouldn't and it's not you know traceable back to one person making a decision it just kind of over time ingrained itself right right um that that's true everywhere i mean you could even go down on your family level probably and find ways that that's happened and you can't just trace it back to to one thing or one decision or one person um and so for me that's one of the most important things for us to keep in mind as we think about well, how are we to relate to this is to think about the way that sin is trying to use government uh, to go about pursuing its own agenda. Sin is going to use whatever it can, right? Yep. Satan's going to use whatever he can to bring people away from God. And we got we have to recognize that. Uh, to... Uh, and we'll close with this idea, but to 
builds what you said there, uh, especially talking about uh, is it physical principalities and powers? Is it spiritual? They they understood it as uh, an evil spiritual influence uh, manifesting, perhaps this is not the right word, but uh, involved in the physical world as well, that these things are intertwined together. I've been in Ephesians all year, and tonight I'm in that section of, you know, uh, walk in love, walk in light, uh, walk in wisdom, that section in chapter 5. Uh, but when he's talking about walking in light, and I think this is very fitting for what we're talking about, because Ephesians is very much spiritual principalities and powers having effect in the the physical world that we're living in, showing those things being intertwined. And walking in light, he says, is, is doing these good things and discerning what is good from evil, but then also exposing evil. And when we started this, we talked about uh, Jesus's relationship to the government, his language on the government, and then our relationship as Christians is bearing this gospel message, which is ultimately going to chal- challenge earthly power, uh, but bearing this gospel message. But what you said at the end of understanding that sin's intertwined in all of this, it's not enough just for us to say this is the message of God if we aren't submissive to it as well, then sin's going to find that avenue to to pull us that way uh, and get us sucked into the power that everybody else uh, gets sucked into uh, with politics and with all those other things you mentioned, sex, race, all of it. Anywhere that there's power to be grabbed, sin is trying to pull us in that direction uh, away from the gospel. So I think this was a very good conversation, good uh, preliminary thoughts, good foundation for what we're going to talk about next week, which is the theology of politics or a theology of of politics we think it's we think it's the one probably if that's if this is us talking about it uh, but we're going to really apply all of this information all of these texts and things that we looked at today uh, and to see how we can have a, a good theology of politics uh, and behave and talk about politics in a way that is uh, appropriate and worthy of uh, the gospel that we've been called uh, to to walk after and to carry with us. This has been our show. Spencer, you got anything else to add there? I, th- I think we about covered everything for this first one. I'm looking forward to, to putting a, kind of putting legs on all this next week. It's going to be good. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you for saying that. Uh, this is coming out Thursday. These release on Thursdays. Normally every other week we've been delayed for a number of reasons. Let's just say 2020. Uh, we've been delayed. But um, next week, a week from this episode going up, the second is going to go up. That is our plan unless Spencer gets sick again and nearly dies or we have another ice storm or who knows. But that's the plan. Two episodes, two weeks in a row. We hope you listen to both of them. Uh, if you have any questions between the two or after the two, uh, send those to us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. You can reach us on our Facebook page at Strong Church as well. Uh, and be sure to check out strongchurch.org for all sorts of other stuffs on politics, Bible, and everything else going on in the culture. I'm Jack. That's Spencer. We'll see you next week. <laughs>